That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Friday morning, June 11, about 8.30 a.m. And time for this week's Reporters Roundtable. And for the first time in the Biden administration, the spotlight is on foreign policy. The president himself off to repair relations with our G7 allies and NATO before stepping into the lion's den with Vladimir Putin. The vice president in Guatemala and Mexico with a blunt message to anybody who might be considering a trek to our southern border, don't come. Meanwhile, on the domestic front, a bipartisan group of senators announces a tentative trillion dollar infrastructure deal. But Joe Manchin probably kills the possibility of any deal on voting rights. And Donald Trump reportedly tells supporters, don't worry, I'll be back in the Oval Office by the end of August. <laughs> so much to talk about, so little time. So let's dive right in with today's panel, Jennifer Habercorn, congressional reporter for the L.A. Times. Hello, Jen. Hello, Bill. Good to have you with us. Sudeep Reddy, Managing Editor of Politico. Hi, Sudeep. Hey, Bill. And Hunter Walker, uh, publisher, proprietor, founder of The Uprising, the great new newsletter we all subscribe to. Hello, Hunter. Hey, Bill. How are you? Fine. Or if we don't yet subscribe to, we should, right, Hunter? <laughs> There's the word. <laughs> it's at theuprising.info. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> there you go. All right. Um, I know there's a lot of attention on what's happening with the foreign trip. But I want to start here at home with the breaking news. Uh, Jen, your territory, uh, that last night, uh, the Gang of Ten, five Republicans and five Democrats in the Senate, uh, announced a, I don't know, tentative, shall we call it, deal on infrastructure, about $1.2 trillion. Is this for real? Jen, what do you know? It's a little early to say, um, I, you know, it's definitely fair to have a lot of skepticism right now. This is only five Republicans who've signed on to this. And of course, any deal that gets to the Senate's filibuster would need 10 Republicans. And um, they don't have that right now. When they put this uh, announcement out, they wanted to have those 10 in pocket to show the the, the uh potential here. And they don't mm -hmm. have that. They didn't even release the full plan that they've agreed to. Their their statement was just a couple sentences. So um, this definitely has the potential to turn into a deal that is signed by President Biden. But right now, a lot of skepticism that you can pick up five more Republicans and importantly, not lose a bunch of Democrats on the other side. And, um, you know, the taxes are going to continue to remain an issue. There's um, chatter that uh, um uh, a gas tax increase would mm -hmm. not fly with Biden because uh, it would violate his pledge not to increase taxes on people making under $400,000. So um, uh, that's going to be one of the most significant early hurdles. Uh, and Sudeep, it doesn't matter how many uh, moderate Republicans sign on to this deal. Uh, Mitch McConnell will decide whether it goes forward or not, won't he? That's right. Uh 
Mitch McConnell will determine whether you can even get five more uh, Republicans to sign on to this. And uh, even if you do, whether it's even worth going forward on, um, there is a, a possibility that Mitch McConnell will will jump on something like this because it's going to be uh, less expensive than other bills. And the idea being that if they can if they can lure Democrats into doing a smaller bill, then they can stop anything else that comes after that. Um, that's obviously not uh, going to work for most Democrats, and that therein lies the problem. That uh, yeah. Democrats want something much larger and much more ambitious. Right. So, Hunter, uh, as both Sadiq and Jen pointed out, not all Democrats are crazy about this, particularly because um, so far in this deal, it looks like there's none of the climate change stuff that Biden had originally proposed, which people like Ron Wyden say is absolutely necessary. So, Hunter, do you think in the end, after all of this uh, uh, attempts at bipartisanship, they're just going to ram it through with all Democratic votes? You know, the Biden administration has responded in the past to these kind of more progressive gripes with um, some of his policy by kind of making the argument, you know, Mitch McConnell's against it. Uh, these folks mm -hmm. are against it. So we feel like we're in sort of the perfect middle way. Uh, yeah. And I think that's a strong posture for the president. Uh, but at the end of the day, as Sudeep was pointing out, you know, Mitch McConnell on one level very much seems to hold all of the cards. So, you know, with Biden eager to kind of seem like a reasonable compromiser um, and his power, you know, he can get a smaller bill here. Uh, I think the question that's kind of looming over all, all of this is the progressive push to eliminate the filibuster. And, you know, the thing that Mitch has to calculate is how much can he block before that really becomes untenable and that gets louder and that becomes more of a middle way among Democrats. Uh, well, you lead us there. Um, let's jump right in. Uh, because Joe Manchin certainly brought the uh, issue of the filibuster back to the forefront with his op-ed last Sunday when he said he would vote against the F Voting Rights Act for the People Act and against any change in the filibuster. Um, I will give uh, credit to our producer, Jay Feldman, for pulling this one out of the archives. Here back on July 5, 1963, to tell you how long we've been dealing with this issue, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. With a Senate that has a minority of misguided senators who will use the filibuster, they won't let the majority senators vote. And certainly they wouldn't want the majority of people to vote because they know they do not represent the majority of the American people. So, Jen, did uh, Joe, Joe Manchin, in effect, kill any chances of any change to the filibuster? I think so. I mean, if you listen to Manchin, as I've done for the last six months very closely, he has never indicated that he was open to changing the filibuster at all. And um, I think that's been a really hard lesson for some Democrats to uh, really absorb because they had so much hope that this was going to be their opportunity to make a lot of change. And now, you know, it's not just Manchin. He's really just representing a handful. We don't know how many, but uh, several Senate Democrats who don't want to change the filibuster. Um, I'd, I'd add one caveat to that. One thing that I'm looking at is whether the Supreme Court strikes down the Affordable Care Act. If they did something dramatic there, I think that's one area in which Joe Manchin, where 
who represents West Virginia, where the ACA is extremely popular despite its um, you know, deep red leanings. I see that as one area where he might be willing to change the filibuster. And um, other than that, I just don't see it happening. So not only voting rights, uh, uh, but a lot of other things are going to get held up when that filibuster remains in place. But Sudeep, um, uh, a little research I did on my own. Uh, Joe Manchin, 10 years ago, I know, 10 years ago, he did say, uh, we can't let the filibuster block the Senate from getting anything done. This is the same Joe Manchin. And he said, one example is, it should not be used to stop a bill from getting to the floor for debate. Shouldn't be used as that threshold or gateway uh, to the floor. Uh, What happened? You know, uh, Senator Manchin is is willing to support a lot of changes to the filibuster in in terms of how it works. Um, But it it seems at his core, he still wants to uh, at least create the perception that he is the driver of bipartisanship. But what, what changes has he actually supported? I don't know of any. Uh, well, he's, in Today. terms of how the filibuster is is done, the, the talking filibuster, the yeah. just, just yeah. the allowing senators to basically bypass the the hard parts of the filibuster. He wants to to make standing them work up, for and, it. Exactly. standing up and talking, right? right. And yeah. he's, he's he has uh, indicated support for some of those measures, um, but that doesn't necessarily change like the fundamental issue around uh, needing to get to to sixty votes and. Uh, He's uh, he, he's still got four years before he faces voters, but um, when when he does, he'll he'll be able to argue in an overwhelmingly Republican state that he uh, at least has been trying to to keep this together. Whether any of that matters, uh, I don't know. It's really hard hard to see that mattering in the end. Joe Manchin is going to be Joe Manchin. So Hunter, in in a sort of in a sense of saying. But I'm not an entirely bad guy. Uh, Joe Manchin in that op-ed said, I, I'm not going to vote for the For the People Act, but I will vote for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act when that comes up later in the year. Uh, and the very next day, uh, Mitch McConnell responded with this message. There's no threat to the voting rights law. It's against the law to discriminate in voting on the base of race already. And so I think it's unnecessary. So <laughs> we circle back to Mitch McConnell uh, running the show. Hunter? I mean, one point I think we, we have to make is that when it comes to the For the People Act, you know, we don't need to go back to Joe Manchin 10 years ago. We just go back to 2019. And before he was for it, he, uh, before he was against it, he was for it. And in uh, fact, he was you. a co-sponsor. Yeah. Co-sponsor, you know? so, right. Uh, so, the, you know, there, there's a lot of gymnastics going on uh, with, with his positioning here. Uh, and another force going on behind the scenes is you have these very dramatic Republican bills, uh, particularly in Florida um, and in Arizona, uh, mm-hmm. that are kind of chipping away at voting access, if you will. Uh, and Mitch McConnell sort of simplifying it by saying it, it, it's not, you know, legal to discriminate against, um, it, you know, voters by race. But a lot of people would argue that, in effect, some of these restrictive voting laws do that. But I think we were really kind of getting to this fundamental um dynamic of gridlock that exists right now in Congress, where um, through the filibuster, Mitch McConnell holds all the cards. I think Jen was pointing out that all this focus may be on Joe Manchin, but what I hear from the Hill is there are a lot of Democrats who are kind of worried uh, you know, about moving the filibuster in more moderate states, and he actually takes heat for them, which they extremely appreciate. Uh, and the question is going to be things like the ACA. You know, 
is there a point where Mitch McConnell's blocking something that Joe Manchin and some of these other folks feel creates political risk for them in their home states? Yeah, I, I just want to add, I had lunch with a top lobbyist yesterday who who told told me, oh, there we go, Hunter, your, your friend joining us. Um, but the top lobbyist who told me that with Joe Manchin actually, and Jen, you sort of alluded to this, that he doesn't speak for himself. We don't, we don't know who the other people are, but he actually represents maybe a half a dozen Democrats, some of whom we might be surprised at, who agree with him uh, in not supporting the For the People Act or not getting rid of the filibuster. I uh, think that's right. Yeah. So uh, maybe someday those names will come out. Okay, let's jump overseas with this big foreign tour. I, I got to tell you, watching yesterday, um, Joe Biden and Boris Johnson together, I mean, best buds forever, it looked like, and then Jill Biden showing up with her famous blazer. Uh, Jen, this looks like the, the European love tour, right? <laughs> starting off at any rate. What, what does Biden uh, hope to accomplish, at least in the first phase of this trip? Well, I think you um, phrased it exactly right, the love tour. I mean, it was literally emblazoned on Jill Biden's blazer. But if Biden, you know, this is what Biden kind of ran on, is having great relationships with foreign leaders. And um, uh, he's going to have this love fest with other uh, Western European leaders, uh, uh, show that America has changed since the Trump years. And um, uh, he wants to send that message to Europe that America's back and that America wants to be a team player. You know, we have the uh, COVID vaccines that the U.S. is contributing uh, half of the supply for to the rest of the world. So, um, you know, Love Fest seems like a perfect way to frame the first part of this trip. Obviously, that will change as the um, trip moves on. Right. And, and Sudeep, here is the president yesterday when he arrived. Uh, I think this was talking to the uh, members of the military after he first got there, uh, talking about how important these relationships really are. America is better positioned to advance our national security and our economic prosperity when we bring together like-minded nations to stand with us. These nations that have shed blood alongside of us in defense of our shared values, our unrivaled network of alliances and partnerships that are the key to American advantage in the world and have been. Uh, and Sudeep, the world leaders or the European leaders that I've seen quoted, they're kind of happy, right? They see this as a, a sigh of relief. Oh, yeah. They're, they're loving the 180 from, from America these days. Um, they're, they're seeing it in uh, dealings with the EU, where President uh, Trump was uh, was openly uh, hostile to the idea, idea of multilateralism. Um, they're seeing it uh, with uh, with NATO in the few days. We'll see it. You'll certainly see it uh, when Biden moves on to meet with Putin. It's just going to be a completely different uh, tone and tenor to these conversations. Um, but there, there's still a, a layer of skepticism underneath of, uh, okay, well, this is good for right now. But mm. um, a lot of Europeans are wondering, well, like, what if what if the old ways come back. Uh, that I don't think any of them think Trump is going to be back in August, uh, but they do wonder what uh, what he's leaving behind in terms of his forces and uh, and what they mean for who comes next after Biden. Yeah, which means, Hunter, uh, it's rebuilding the trust 
is not going to happen overnight, right? I mean, they are worried that we flipped so 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 far in one direction the last time that we could do it again. And let's be honest. I mean, we don't right now. Uh, I was about to say we don't look like the most stable nation. I don't think we are the most stable nation. We are, you know, five months out from you know, an attack on the halls of Congress where, where mm. people were, you know, storming through the halls in an effort to overturn the election. And, and, you know, I think there's a little bit of a collective amnesia about that, but that sort of violent attempt at uh, autocracy is what we normally associate with, I think, more, uh, you know, as they say, underdeveloped nations. And, and, and that's where we are right now. So, you know, I think the world would be right to you know, wonder about our stability. Joe Biden is is doing everything he can on a, every front, whether it's, you know, optics or words to protect a sense of calm and normalcy. But, you know, um, the world's going to need to see, you know, a lot more than five months to, to understand that America is, is stable um, and back to a similar posture to where we were before. Uh, so, Sadiq, let me jump with you to next week or the end of, I guess, beginning of next week, when uh, Biden sits down with Joe Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin in Geneva. Uh, I guess at least we know this, right? Uh, it's not going to be the same message that Donald Trump took to his meeting with Vladimir Putin. <laughs> it, it, it will not be. You, 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 we still don't know what those messages were uh, that, that happened in their one-on-ones. Um, this is this is going to be Joe Biden's attempt to to show that he's uh, tough on Russia, that he actually means it um, when it comes to blocking uh, Russia and Russians from hacking, from uh, the the r- ransomware uh, attacks that are going on, from all all sorts of other uh, moves um, with with Ukraine. Uh, all of these are are steps that Biden has to to find a way to to get across and. Um, what comes later will actually be the test. If if Putin keeps doing what he's doing, then it's a, a question for how Biden might react to that and how he might actually show America's strength in these uh, in, in this domain. Hunter, what do you think he wants to come away from his meeting with Putin? But what Biden wants to come away with after his meeting from Putin? Well, I think one of the most important um, gains for him uh, would be what what Sudeep was pointing towards earlier, which is just you know a visibly different posture and relationship, um, you know, to what President Trump had. Uh, you know, one thing that was so interesting during the Trump years was a lot of people would point at the sanctions uh, and say, you know, look, we're being very tough behind the scenes, and then Trump would you know have those tweets and other rhetoric that would. You know, raise real questions about his relationship with Putin. So I think Biden wants to put his foot down on that front. But you know, one thing I've always wondered is, you know, substantively, we're, we're fighting this asymmetrical game with Russia, where they, you know, are very interested in this kind of uh, unconventional information warfare and hacking warfare. And our response is, it's hard not to see them as slaps on the wrist. Um, I mean, Putin mm-hmm. and his inner circle are still tremendously wealthy. He still has, you know, tremendous control over that country. And as Sudeep was pointing out, we're seeing solar winds, which is maybe the worst hack ever, even though it didn't target our elections. We're seeing this ransomware stuff. It's not really stopping. And I'm not a thousand percent sure, you know, how much Biden can do about that. Right. So, Jen, uh, the president's trip follows uh, the first foreign trip for the vice president, Kamala Harris. 
which um, was all carefully planned out, including uh, an interview one-on-one -on -one with Lester Holt of NBC's Everything Se NBC. Everything seemed to be going swimmingly until this little exchange. We can't avoid it. Here it is. Okay. Do you have any plans to visit the border? I, I'm here in Guatemala today. I, at some point, you know, I, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So you, this whole, this whole, this whole thing about the border. We've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't understand the point that you're making. I'm in Guatemala because my focus is dealing with the root causes of migration. Jen. You and I know, as Californians, she's been to the border. She was there as a attorney general of California. She was there as a United States senator from California. Why didn't she? Why wasn't she ready for that question? Yeah, it was really puzzling, um, and it. Uh, I mean, we all know that she's kind of struggled with media interviews, and uh, this is not one of her strong suits. But it was really a um, a horrible, unforced error. And it undermines the idea that you have to, you know, these politicians go to these countries, um, you know, the whole reason she went to Guatemala was to send the message of how important uh, the root cause of my immigration is, as she was saying. Uh, Biden is going to Europe to make a, a, a send a message to our allies. And so if you're saying you don't need to go to these places to make a point, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very odd message. And you know, clearly the administration is trying to shift this idea that she was in charge of the border crisis mm -hmm. um, away. And, um, you know, Republicans are just seizing that moment. And uh, it's going to I think this is going to follow her for a long time. And uh, it's it's a really puzzling, unforced error. Again, it seems to me she had a quick answer, an easy answer, but she she just didn't give, and then it became right. very a very pain, a painful interview. Uh, Sudeep, overall, uh, the message um, that she gave in Guatemala was to anybody who's thinking of coming to the United States, don't come. Uh, that's basically the same message Donald Trump was sending. Yes, and it is it is uh, technically the the position of the administration. Uh, to say don't come, but uh, to provide it in soundbite fashion like that uh, was really just just remarkable. Look, she, the the vice president has uh, perhaps uh, one of the hardest uh, portfolios some, uh, that she's been handed by by President Biden, dealing with immigration, dealing with uh, voting rights, a lot of intractable issues. This was not going to be a winner uh, for her going down there, and there had to be uh, some better some some better prep work and messaging than what we saw. Uh, coming out of it, but it does it does raise some questions about um, how she does in, in these kinds of, of settings, where even on a, a slightly controversial uh, question, she kind of just bombed it, and uh, that that uh, she's going to have to figure out a way to recover from that. What do you what do you think, Hunter? Are we making too much of this? Is the media in general making too much of this? Uh, this let's say <laughs> a hiccup at this interview. You know, I got slammed the other day on Twitter <laughs> because I dared to say that, you know, the vice president's tweet heading into Memorial Day weekend, where she sort of, it was kind of bizarre. She, she just, they tweeted from her official account, just a picture of her and said, enjoy the long weekend. And, and, mm. you know, a lot of people, you know, mm -hmm. immediately piled onto that and said, like, why is she not commemorating the troops? Um, 
Now, look, I don't think that tweet was the worst thing in the world, but at the same time, I think that criticism was very, very predictable. And I think, fair or not, there is sort of a, a you know, very rote right-wing outrage cycle that, you know, a, a smart uh, a Democratic politician would be mindful of. And, and it's not nothing because it affects your ability and your stature to get things done. And it affects positioning, you know, with some perhaps more moderate independent voters. So I think this focus on going to the border versus the root causes is a little silly. I don't think, you know, Ted Cruz is able to accomplish much on the policy level by, you know, putting on a camo hat and, and mm -hmm. posing dramatically by offense. But I think that they know some people want that. And that answer of I've already been there is so much better uh, than what we saw her give in that interview. Right, exactly. Okay. Jen Habercorn and uh, Sudeep Brady, Hunter Walker, our panelists today, today's roundtable. Still lots more to talk about here. So let's take a quick break and then we'll pick up on the other side here on the Bill Press Pod. Today's roundtable brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, the good men and women of the AFT, under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten. Boy, they have been on the front lines now for sure. They always are, but particularly for the last 18 months, uh, handling the uh, challenge of face brought to us by the pandemic of first organizing classes at home. Uh, and then organizing for the hybrid classes, a little at home, a little uh, in school, and now overseeing the return to the classroom, if not now, at least uh, entirely by the fall. We salute the Teachers of America, the good members of the AFT, 1.7 million members strong, and thank them for the support of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back with today's roundtable, taking a look back at the news of the week with Hunter Walker, publisher of The Uprising, Sudeep Reddy, managing editor for Politico, and Jennifer Habercorn, congressional reporter for the LA Times. A um, pretty shocking report late yesterday uh, from the New York Times 
that the Department of Justice under Donald Trump, we had heard earlier uh, that as part of their leak investigation, Jeff Sessions was prying into the emails and uh, of, of reporters from CNN and from the New York Times. Now we learn that they were also prying into the Apple accounts of at least two Democratic members of Congress, Adam Schiff, who was the ranking Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, and Eric Swalwell, who was a member of the Intelligence Committee. Um, Sudeep, what the hell, right? I mean, uh, this is spying on American citizens. It, it really, yeah, it's 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 remarkable to see the continuation on so many fronts on uh, on seizing journalists' phone records, on spying on uh, on these folks here. It's just it's perplexing that we're we're four months into this administration and we still have uh, have these these bits of information coming out. And this is uh, th- this is it, it's it's perplexing. That's, that's the, the one, the one piece of it. And I, I think, uh, the white house is starting to realize it's got to get a handle on what's going on at the justice department, uh, and, uh, on so many fronts to be able to explain, um, what's, what happened before and what's happening now. Uh, Jen, I don't know whether anybody from the LA times had, had been a, a subject of this, uh, this department of justice, uh, inquiry, but it certainly has a chilling effect on reporters who are covering the Pentagon or the Congress. Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't know of any LA Times reporters who were caught up in it, but um, it definitely has an an impact on how you talk to sources, and uh, it's um, it's it's definitely scary to see. It's scary to see that you know they're going after reporters and members of Congress now. Uh, and uh, apparently, Hunter, according to the Times. Uh, the subjects of these investigations were identified by Donald Trump, who basically considered Schiff and Swalwell for certainly uh, as the enemy. And he directs weaponizing, basically, the DOJ to go after people he considered his political enemies. Very Nixonian, huh? Yeah. And, and there you know, are a lot of instances of these sort of investigations or government moves that were kind of driven by his, you know, conspiratorial uh, uh, mindset. I'm thinking of, you know, Mark Meadows pursuing, you know, bizarre election theories uh, and trying to get the acting attorney general to go in that direction. And I think this, this ties back to what we were talking about before. I mean, we are, we are just coming out of this period where these really, really shocking things happened. And, and, you know, I think there's going to be a lot more revelations in the, in the coming months and years about, you know, just how close we came to some pretty dark stuff and and also how many things uh, uh, did actually take place that, you know, would have been unthinkable a long time ago. Right. Uh, So it was uh, tomorrow will be a week from Donald Trump's first reappearance on the campaign trail, speaking at a big Republican dinner uh, down in North Carolina. Everybody was waiting to see what new message the former president might bring to the political scene. Uh, and it turns out it wasn't so much a new message at all, uh, but sort of some, if I could call it, recycled bullshit. Here is the president last Saturday. That election will go down as the crime of the century, and our country is being destroyed by people who perhaps have no right to destroy it. People who have no right uh, to destroy it. Um, anybody want to try to make any sense of this, Sadiq? Oh boy, this is uh, you know we I, 
I think uh, this is going to become a version of the uh, of the in two weeks uh, phenomenon of, of Donald Trump that he's always trying to get attention and stay uh, in in the news cycle, and so he's going to repeat all of his lines uh, and and bring them up, and then he's going to also keep raising uh, the idea that he's going to return to office. Like I think we we were expecting the in a, in one QAnon theory that he'd be back in office by March. Now, uh, after these, uh, these mysterious, uh, Arizona results, like come back with the truth, we'll be back in August. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and it's just, it's, it's bizarre, but it is fittingly bizarre for, for the times, uh, that we're in to see, uh, this just like this, this snowball. And, and the, the, the thing that we have to be, uh, watchful of and wary of is that, uh, the president has tens of millions of supporters who believe him on this stuff, and uh, he runs the risk of radicalizing uh, even more people uh, than what we saw on January 6th, and and we just don't know what that's going to turn out to be. Well, well, Jen, the craziest theory that I saw this week was that uh, the president, with a on a talk radio show, toying with the idea that he might run for Congress in this newly created congressional seat in Florida, and then run for speaker. <laughs> I mean... Uh, yeah, I, it's certainly possible. You don't even have to be a member of Congress, technically, to be elected speaker of the House. So if... Uh, gosh, I, I never thought of this scenario, but if Republicans take control of the House, they certainly could elect Donald Trump as speaker. Um, that's a... a Gosh, that's that's a scenario. Um, well, as some people point out, though, he is no John Quincy Adams. I mean, the, the idea that <laughs> right. Donald Trump would be comfortable as a lowly member of the House, even as Speaker. Hardly, yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, the you know, the thing that's most remarkable to me is, I mean, Donald Trump has defied a lot of norms, but, you know, further defying the norm of um you know, presidents, once they leave office, you know, kind of fading into the night and doing charity work, but not really getting involved in partisan politics. And, uh, you know, uh, former President Trump is certainly defying that norm in a way that um, is going to cause a lot of consternation for Republicans in Congress for a very, very long time. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Hunter, what do the Republicans do that they say they want to focus on the future uh, with a former president who will not leave the scene, who only wants to focus on the past? They're stuck, aren't they? And a former president who remains extremely popular with the base, yeah, who, and pointed out. you know, is... And I think it's important to get into his motivations, right? Is he doing this because, you know, he wants to potentially make money and stay relevant? Is he doing this because with multiple investigations into him, um, remaining a political actor allows him to frame them as a witch hunt? Or is he sincerely trying to come back undemocratically or not? I, I don't purport to know the answer, but he's very much still on stage and, and he very much still has a hold on a big portion of the party. So I think so far what we've seen is, you know, leaders of the more mainline Republican organizations literally, you know, running down to Mar-a-Lago to pay tribute and hand him made up awards. We've seen them um, going down there for fundraisers because that still is the heart of the party. So, yeah, I, I don't think 
at this moment, we're seeing the Republican Party move away from Trump. And, and unless the poll numbers and dynamics start to shift a ton, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we get, you know, a, a Justin Amash or, or Jeb-like figure who sort of tries to have a, a never-Trump, you know, primary bid. Mm-hmm. But, but right now, the dynamics are very close to him. Um, at the same time, you know, he's an old man. And, and I think even if a Trump ally sort of becomes the next standard bearer, there is a clock on how long he can be the prime figure in the party. Right. Well, um, <laughs> I just can't resist this because for once, Donald Trump did not say the craziest thing of any uh, political figure this week. I think that award has to go to, uh, not for the first time, Congressman Louis Gohmert of Texas, who uh, in a congressional hearing where they were talking about what uh, might be done about climate change, uh, Louis Gomer came up with a um, certainly an original and unique uh, idea. Here he is. Is there anything that the National Forest Service or BLM can do to uh, change the course of the moon's orbit or the Earth's orbit <laughs> around the sun? Obviously, that would have profound effects on our climate. I would have to follow up with you on that one, Mr. Gomert. Yeah. Uh, that's the poor woman from the uh, Forest Service who really, you heard the long pause. She didn't know what the hell to, to say. Um, uh, Sadeep, does it get any crazier than that? <laughs> I think I think we, with Louis Gomert, you can count on something even more creative coming down the road uh, uh, on this front. Um, look, I, I guess that maybe shows a commitment to, to climate change that didn't exist before to, <laughs> to, to dealing with it. This seems like a little more extreme than, than uh, switching to an electric car or cutting back your meat consumption. But um, uh, maybe there's a silver lining here. Uh, so, Jennifer, it was just a couple of weeks ago that Louis Gohmert, uh, on a speech on the floor, uh, said he realizes that some people think he's the dumbest man in Congress. Uh did he just prove it? <laughs> oh, maybe so. Um, you know, I watch a lot of congressional hearings, and it is pretty amazing some of the things that you hear members of Congress ask. But this this takes the cake in my uh, reporting career, I believe. Of the poor woman from the, again from the Forest Service, she didn't know what the hell to say in response to that. All right, Hunter, I want to give you the last word before we get to your favorite stories of the week, folks. Uh, but Hunter, in in the uprising, you've been paying a lot of attention to the New York mayor's race, which is such a wild scene. Uh, we're less than two weeks, I think, from the primary now, right? Uh, early voting starts this week or very soon. Yeah, uh- yeah. Early early voting is beginning. The primary is on June twenty second. There you go. So, uh, and it, so and this so is a decisive your, primary. Give us your, you know, capsule summary of where the things stand right now. <laughs> so this is the first race where they have this new ranked choice voting system. The polls have been all over the map. Um, you know, to the point that Maya Wiley was in fourth in one poll on Monday. Uh, by Wednesday, another poll had her up on two uh, in second place. So I think we're, we're all sort of flying blind with this one. Uh, but one thing that's consistent is Eric Adams and Andrew Yang do seem to be near the front of the pack. Um, 
And you know, one thing to point out for readers, this Democratic primary is likely decisive, given how many Democratic voters there are in New York. Uh, so Eric Adams is an interesting figure. He had this whole you know controversy this week over whether he actually lives in the city. Um, and he took reporters into this house where he said he lives in Brooklyn, that had a bed in the middle of the room. People were wondering <laughs> if it's really his son's house. He certainly, by his own admission, you know, sleeps a lot of nights in his government office where he set up a bed and all this stuff for his plant-based diet. So it's been a wild race filled with uniquely New York political scandals and, uh, you know, in the home stretch, it seems to be Eric Adams in front. He's more of a moderate. And then Maya Wiley, the civil rights lawyer and former official in the de Blasio administration, she's gotten late support from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I think the weekend before last, uh, last week, she got Elizabeth Warren. Uh, it's hard to look at these polls, but she does seem to be gaining momentum. So I think she has ingredients for a late night, a late surge. But mm -hmm. the bottom line is it's, it's totally up in the air with, with just a, a less than two weeks to go. Uh, and you can follow it all in uh, the uprising, theuprising.com, uh, as well as uh, in the New York Times and the rest of the media. Okay. The, the uprising.info. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Dot info. I couldn't Thank get you. the dot com, Bill. I couldn't do it. Oh, all right. Sorry about that. I'm going to try to remember that. Uh, here we go. You know, we always say there's one story, despite everything we're covering, as much as we're racing from story to story, there's one story that makes you stop in your tracks and say, oh, my God. Uh, either for good or for bad, our favorite story of the week. Uh, where are we? Jennifer, let's start with you. Um, I'm going to go with the um, very obvious story uh, in ProPublica, the secret IRS files, trove of never-before-seen records reveal how the wealthiest avoid oh, income tax. Yeah. I mean, this story just um, you know resonated so deeply, and I think it's going to have a lot of impact on tax policy from Democrats in future years, showing that um, you know the country's richest folks paid little to no income tax, and uh, really remarkable reporting on behalf of ProPublica, and uh, it's it's really going to resonate. Uh, yeah, and also referencing what we talked about earlier with this DOJ investigation, right, of the of reporters and members of Congress, the fact that this stuff. ProPublica was able to get into the IRS, right, and get these records Absolutely. and make them public is another whole issue uh, as well. Scary uh, on several fronts, indeed. Uh, Sudeep, what caught your attention? You know, I'm going to I'm going to go with one of my favorite stories of the week because it was just so absurdly fun. Uh, Representative Mo Brooks, a Republican uh, from Alabama, he was served papers in a lawsuit by Eric Falwell <laughs> on the Capitol riot. He went on Twitter to protest how it was done, how the papers were served. And to prove his point, he took a picture of his monitor showing a page from Alabama <laughs> law. And instead of taking a proper screenshot with his computer, he took a picture and uh, tweeted it out. And right at the bottom of that screen, uh, that that screen are passwords for what appear to be his family's <laughs> accounts online, uh, Momar5456, an email address, <laughs> a pin. It was just too perfect. And the best part of this, of course, is that Representative Mo Brooks sits on a House cybersecurity subcommittee. Oh, so uh, who, who needs Russia uh, when you've got people uh, inflicting <laughs> this on themselves? Just go figure. I, I think he's giving uh, Louis Gomer to run for his money. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Hunter, wrap it up here. You know, when I wasn't um, 
going on shopping sprees with Mo Brooks's credit card information this week, <laughs> uh, I, I was reading the news, and and there's a really great story in New York Magazine by um, Erin Carmone, who's just one of my favorite writers generally, and 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 really um, without peer, and I think the the legal space, and she has this long look at um, Amy Chua and Jed Rubenfeld, uh, this Yale Law School power couple. Um, the world might remember Amy mm-hmm. from her her Tiger Mom book. Um, but they've been incredibly influential, including you know being seen as a pipeline to Supreme Court clerkships. And yet, uh, they're just going through so much personal and professional scandal at Yale, um, you know, with allegations of sexual harassment and and parties where they're drinking too much with students. Dinner um, parties just, with students. Yep. All that. Yeah. Dinner parties, drunken dinner parties with yeah. students. Um, and it, it's just a really interesting read and a fascinating glimpse into, you know, the world of high powered law schools and the Supreme Court pipeline, which is, I think, something that has so much influence over all of our lives. But, you know, prior to reading this, I didn't really understand much about it and mm-hmm. certainly didn't know how chaotic and messy it all was. Uh, okay, so um, for my favorite story, uh, I credit Politico uh, <laughs> for providing my favorite story of the week. Uh, yesterday, uh, Politico's a Politico reporter Natalie Fertig um, <laughs> intercepted Senator Bernie Sanders uh, and wanted to ask him a couple of questions, and she identified herself as Politico's cannabis reporter. Uh, here is her, her exchange with an unbelieving Bernie Sanders. Senator Sanders, Natalie Furtick of Politico. I'm the cannabis reporter. Um, there's been a, you are the I'm cannabis, the cannabis you, reporter. I are you stoned now? I'm not stoned right now, but I, I will ask you a question. Is that a requirement to be? It's actually not. Okay, just wanted to yeah, check just, it out. Just, I know. It's a, it's a good question. <laughs> He wants the goods. So Bernie wants to know if she is stoned at the moment. I think we buried the lead here. Politico has a cannabis supporter. Sadiq? We actually have a three-person cannabis team. It's a oh, my God. Uh, with a lot of policy across the country. Uh, and uh, I think Bernie Sanders is going to have to become a subscriber now. Uh, so, Hunter, does the um, uprising have a, a cannabis supporter? I mean, I'm, I'm, as I said to you, the head cook and bottle washer of so, there, but you know, you know, I, I'm working on a book about Bernie and, 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 and one of the <laughs> things that's super funny about him is that, you know, Burlington is one of the most, you know, pot friendly cities in the country. Right. And yeah. he's moved in all these spaces, including like activist spaces in the sixties and seventies where, you know, there's no <laughs> question there was a lot of this around, but Bernie is totally as straight as it gets. And I think, I think, that moment was just like a really interesting one where you see both like his total awareness of this stuff. I mean, I think yeah. for a lot of people on the Hill, the words cannabis reporter would just fly over their head. Uh, and, 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 but also like, he's totally not, um, he's not partaking himself, you know, he's, <laughs> he, he's deeply skeptical of it while, while being very fully uh, aware. Uh, but Jen, some people may not realize uh, I do, because I know several members of this, there is a, cannabis caucus in the House of Representatives of members of members who support legalization of pot. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I will say there's a caucus for just about everything on Capitol Hill. <laughs> um, there's two uh, caucuses re- re- uh, related to growing flowers, uh, wine caucuses, bicycle caucuses. Um, the, the joke is that you can find a caucus for just about anything. But I would 
suspect that this one is relatively active just because there is, you know, oh. such a, a, a substantial legal fight between the states and the feds on this issue. So uh, this might be one of the more active caucuses. <laughs> right. Well, if, if I may, you yeah. know, there's also a cannabis lobby. This is a billion dollar industry. And I hate to end us on a bit of a downer note, but I saw this tweet the other day. I don't want to be a buzzkill as we're sitting here talking about pot, but um, it was a tweet with this incredible video of this like giant robotic machine that was churning out the pre-rolled joints that they sell in some of these legalized <laughs> cannabis venues. And some girl had captured it and she, uh, you know, had quote tweeted it. And she said, you know, my, my tío, my, my uncle in Spanish, um, did three years in jail, uh, for selling pot and, and now people are making millions. Um, and so it, it you know, I hate to again. I hate to be a downer, but as as we talk about how legitimate this is getting on the hill, it's worth noting. I think that there are a lot of people who are not part of the billion dollar legitimized thing and actually have like suffered a lot for trying to be in this business or or, or you know consuming these products. Well, congratulations to the Politico is ahead of the game here with a three person <laughs> uh, cannabis team. Covering we might call that. it a cipher. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Habercorn from the LA Times, latimes.com. Sudeep Reddy, managing editor of Politico, politico.com. And Hunter Walker, publisher of the uprising.info, correct? Yes, the uprising.info. Please subscribe, folks. Okay, and thank you, guys. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, great job, and thank you all for listening and joining us on today's roundtable. Uh, we'll see you next week, early next week, with a special interview with Brian Stelter from CNN, host of The Reliable Sources. Brian talking to us about how Fox News and other right-wing media are navigating the political landscape in, these, uh, in this post-Trump era, or maybe we should say new version of Trump era. That's next on the Bill Press Pod. Meanwhile, take care of yourself, stay safe, stay strong, stay happy, and come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.